turning in God's precious word to 2 Corinthians and to the chapter 6. 2 Corinthians and to the chapter 6. I'm going to read together from the first verse of the chapter. 2 Corinthians, the chapter 6 and the verse 1. Let us hear God's word together. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. 
Amen. May the Lord be pleased to add his own blessing from this public reading of his own precious and infallible word. Amen. Let us turn once again in God's word to the portion of scripture read together this morning, 2 Corinthians and the chapter 6. 2 Corinthians, the chapter 6. I would want to draw your attention uh, to the final two verses of the chapter. We read verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And particularly those words in verse 17, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate. And so the verses and the passages speaking to us about separation. And I want to speak today on separation from Romanism. But let us unite our hearts together in prayer and let's ask the Lord for help in the ministry of his word. Our loving God and our gracious heavenly Father, we do thank thee for the light of scripture and we pray, O God, that as we look into thy word together that thou wouldst grant to us help from heaven grant the power and enlightenment of God the Holy Spirit and we pray, our Father, that in everything that is said, that it would be with a single eye to the glory and to the praise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So hear us, O God, and presence thyself with us. Give us help from heaven. We ask these things in the Savior's great name. Amen. As you can see from our text of Scripture this morning, the doctrine of separation is a scriptural doctrine. We're called upon here in God's word to be separate. And therefore, separation is taught in God's precious word. The very basis of this truth is founded upon God's holiness. It's the holiness of God's person that is at the very foundation of separation. The Bible would speak of the Lord as being holy. In the Old Testament, you read of the Lord as one who is glorious in holiness, that he is thrice holy. We were singing those very words, holy, holy, holy the Lord God Almighty. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 and the verse 2, we read, there is none holy as the Lord. And so we must think at the outset of God's holiness that he is perfectly holy, the holiness of his person. But following on from God's holiness, he commands his people to be holy. 
Therefore, there's not only the holiness of God's person, but there's the holiness of God's people. And you could look into the Old Testament scriptures, Leviticus 20 and the verse 7. You could look into the New Testament scriptures, 1 Peter 1, the verse 15, and also repeated in the verse 16, where the Lord in his word would say to his people, Be ye holy, for I am holy. You see the basis there is God's holiness. He said, I am holy. And on the basis of that, he's saying to his people, be ye holy. The holiness of God's person and the holiness of God's people and the holiness of God's purpose. It is the responsibility of the church of Jesus Christ and every born-again believer to separate themselves unto the Lord and to separate themselves from known sin, and they are commanded to be holy and to live in holiness of life and in purity of life. And that call and that command, therefore, necessitates that we separate. And we must separate from churches, from denominations, from organizations who deny the fundamental truths of the gospel. And therefore, today, on this Reformation Sunday, I want to reaffirm the biblical position of separation from Romanism. Because in this age of confusion and in this age of ecumenical apostasy, there's a call from many to unite together. And there would be the call to focus upon the things that we can agree on and to forget about the differences. They would say, well, we would believe the Trinity. And we believe in heaven and we believe in hell. And both churches would oppose abortion and same-sex marriage and so forth. And so they would want us to focus upon those matters where we could agree on. But I have to say today the differences are too great to ignore. The differences are too important to just simply set aside. And by way of introduction to the message today, let me highlight some of the other Reformed churches and what they have had to say in their confessions of faith concerning the Roman Catholic Church. You think of the Anglican Church, or here locally, the Church of Ireland. They originally had 104 articles of faith. And Article 79, it said, The power which the Bishop of Rome now challengeth to be supreme head of the universal Church of Christ is a usurped power contrary to Scripture. Article 80, 
The Bishop of Rome is so far from being the supreme head of the universal church of Christ that his works and doctrine do so plainly discover him to be that man of sin. These are the articles of faith from the Anglican Church. Later, the 104 articles were reduced down to 39 articles. And you may hear today about the 39 articles of faith. But even those articles are still very strong in what they have to say regarding Romanism. Article 22 refers to purgatory. It says it's vainly invented. There's no warranty of Scripture It's repugnant to the word of God. Article 28 concerning the Lord's Supper and refers to transubstantiation and it describes it again as being repugnant to scripture and being superstitious. Article 31 referring to the mass, a blasphemous fable and a dangerous deceit. Then take the Congregational Church. In their Declaration of Faith, chapter 26, paragraph 4, referring to the papacy, they describe it as Antichrist. They describe the Pope as the man of sin and the son of perdition. The Baptist Church, the Confession of 1688, affirms the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church and the Pope none other than Antichrist, the man of sin. The Methodist, you could go into the writings of John Wesley, you could look at his notes on the New Testament and he too takes a similar line. Presbyterian Church, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which forms part of the subordinate standards of our own church. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25 and paragraph 4, it says, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, that son of perdition. And I've read to you there from the various confessions of the different uh, Reformed churches, and I'm outlining to you the historical position of the Protestant churches with regard to Romanism. And I'm simply today wanting to reaffirm that position. Separation from Romanism. And we could give today some reasons, just some, some reasons by way of outline as to why. Why do we separate from the Roman Catholic Church? Well, we could have outlined it there from those various confessions, but let me say, firstly, we separate from Romanism because of the claims of the Roman Catholic Church the claims that they would make. Take, for instance, the titles that are claimed. Titles that are belonging to the Lord alone. 
And yet those titles are openly and blatantly applied to the Pope, the very term Pope. It's not in the Bible. It's a Latin word. It comes from the Latin papa, which means, of course, father. And so that term Pope is referring to the Bishop of Rome as being the father. And yet Matthew 23 and the verse 9 says, And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. And it's not speaking about within the sense of the family. It's speaking in the spiritual sense, and therefore the very name Pope or Father in the spiritual sense is not to be used. It's claimed by Rome. Pope Pius IX, he was actually described as the living Christ. Pius X said, the Pope is Jesus Christ hidden under the veil of flesh. They're blasphemous claims. The First Vatican Council on the 9th of January in 1870 stated, the Pope is Christ in office. The Pope is Christ in office. The historical position of the Roman Catholic Church is that the Pope is to be viewed as the supreme pontiff, that he is referred to as his holiness. He's the vicar of Christ on earth. He's the head of the universal church. And therefore, by these very titles and by these claims, he is usurping the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I put to you today, these claims are too important and they're too serious to ignore. You cannot ignore them. Claims of Rome in relation to those titles. The claims of Rome in relation to their teaching. There are so many areas that we could go into by way of Roman Catholic dogma. We could examine the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the light of Scripture, but for the sake of time, I focus on just two areas. The teaching concerning the sacrificial work We learn from Scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ himself upon the cross said, It is finished. In other words, when the Savior died upon the cross, he made that once for all and that final sacrifice for sin. And the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is a never-to-be-repeated sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 would make that very clear. Hebrews 10 and the verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Lord Jesus Christ offered himself once for all. Verse 12 of that chapter, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, one sacrifice for sins forever. Hebrews 10 and 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. 
In other words, when my Savior died upon the cross of Calvary, his sacrificial death upon the cross was sufficient and it made satisfaction for sin. And yet we have the Roman Catholic Church who would teach concerning the Mass. And the Mass is that sacrifice. I referred a little earlier to transubstantiation. And maybe you haven't heard of that term or you're not sure what that term actually refers to. Well, they would claim that transubstantiation takes place in the Mass. And that the wafer becomes the actual body, actual body, and the actual blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that every mass that is held is another sacrifice. And therefore, they're adding to the sacrifice of Christ. I agree with the article of faith the Church of Ireland, Article 31, that says it's a blasphemous fable and it's a dangerous deceit because Rome is robbing Christ of his once for all and final sacrifice. Robbing the sacrifice of Christ as being sufficient and being final, the atoning work of the Savior. And Rome wants to come and add to that work of atonement and wants to offer again the Lord Jesus Christ. And then wants to add to that further penance and purgatory and indulgences. And it was the seal of indulgences that actually motivated Luther to go and nail his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Why? Because these things are viewed as additional payments for sin. When Jesus paid it all. And all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but praise God, he washed it white as snow. The once for all, the final sacrifice for sin. And yet the church of Rome would say, we need these additional things. I say, my Savior's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to deal with sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And so therefore I repeat again, these claims are too important to ignore. These differences are too serious to just set aside. And so we can see the teaching in regard there to the sacrificial work of Christ, but what about the mediatorial work of Christ? The Savior is our mediator. That's what the Bible teaches us. The mediator is one who comes between us and God. And when Paul was speaking to Timothy, his own son in the faith, he said in 1 Timothy 2 and the verse 5 that there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. It's the man Christ Jesus John 14 and the verse 6, in answer to Thomas's question, the Lord said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father 
No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Rome says you can come through the Pope. Rome says you can come through the priest in the confessional box. Rome says you can come through Mary. And Rome says you can come through the dead saints. And Rome teaches of all of these other mediators when the Bible says so clearly there's one mediator. Peter said in chapter 4 of Acts and verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Therefore, when we examine the claims of Rome, we can see the claim of the titles and the claim in their teaching. What about the claim of tradition? Rome takes tradition We hold to the Word of God. And we hold to God's Word as being God's infallible Word. That the book we have before us is God's inspired truth. And as a denomination, we hold to the authorized version of the Scriptures, believing it to be the most accurate translation of God's Word. And the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. But Rome elevates tradition to the same level as Scripture. And therefore, it's not Scripture alone. They say it's Scripture plus tradition. And they put tradition on an equal footing with Scripture. What is the tradition that they refer to? Tradition is claimed to be the words of Christ which were not recorded, but were passed down the generations by word of mouth. In other words, they claim tradition to be the unwritten word of God. Whenever the Reformation was really taking hold, And the truths of God's word were being preached and the light of the gospel was beginning to spread. The Roman Catholic Church called the Council in 1546. It's referred to as the Council of Trent. And that was set up in an effort to reverse the Reformation. That was set up in an effort to reverse the Protestant scriptural theology that was being taught and preached at the time. And the Council of Trent stated, the Word of God contained both in the Bible and in tradition are of equal authority. The Bible and tradition are of equal authority. Such a view has to be rejected. We therefore cannot fellowship with Rome. And as we have read in our Bible reading in 2 Corinthians 6 and the verse 14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? We cannot. Ignore the differences. They are too important to ignore. And we cannot fellowship with Rome. 
because of the claims of Rome. But then we fellowship not with Rome because of the crimes of Rome. When we look back historically, we can read of the intolerance and the persecution that was suffered by the reformers. And you look at their treatment at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church and you could take up Fox's book of martyrs and it would detail uh, the deaths, the martyrdom of individuals. A list that's too long to, to go down, but men like John Wycliffe and John Huss and William Tyndale, bishops Latimer and Ridley, the two Margarets and so forth, put to terrible deaths crimes of Rome as they treated such as heretics. The first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, he said as he was being put to death, as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. And when we think of those who laid down their lives for the cause of Christ and the gospel and their treatment at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church and the crimes of the church, we cannot fellowship with Rome. In more recent years, there have been other crimes. Crimes that have had worldwide exposure. Crimes of the Roman Catholic Church that have shocked and repulsed all right-thinking individuals, and I refer to the clerical abuse of innocent children. You think of how that has spread right around the globe. I'm not referring to isolated incidents. It's on a global scale. Those crimes that are too numerous to mention and are too obscene to enlarge upon. And if the abuse in itself was not a terrible enough crime, there was the cover-up that followed. Cover-up from the highest levels, the Roman Catholic Church. Rather than handing over uh, those culprits whenever they were found out, Rather than handing them over to the relevant authorities, they actually relocated them and gave them opportunity to offend again and to put other innocent children at risk. Vast, vast sums of money that the Roman Catholic Church has paid out by way of compensation, also trying to silence victims, in 2018, Brooklyn Roman Catholic Church paid out $27.5 million. 2022, the Roman Catholic Church in France raised 20 million euros to pay victims of historical abuse. Also in 2022, Harrisburg Roman Catholic Church in America paid out $12.7 million. 2023, this year, Rochester Roman Catholic Church in America paid $7.6 million. That's just a few. 
Those crimes cannot be ignored. And therefore, we would have to follow the biblical command that is before us in the text of Scripture, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And there's a clear call there for separation, be ye separate. Some of the other denominations, and I referred to their confessions of faith, they may have compromised. They may have stepped away from those confessions, but the position of our church, the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster, is clear. And it's clear in relation to the Roman Catholic Church. And just a few years ago, our presbytery published this little pamphlet, and it's called Our Stand on Separation. And it refers to Rome. And if I was just to read a line or two from this presbytery document, it says this presbytery requires that no free Presbyterian minister, elder, or communicant member should ever be in attendance at the Mass. That's the rule, that's the position of our church. And that same paragraph goes on to say, nor attend any service of worship in which any member of the Roman Catholic clergy or orders is taking part. Anywhere where there's an official from the orders or the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church, any service, there can be no fellowship with Rome. And so the reasons that I have outlined, and I've had to do so very quickly, the claims of the Roman Catholic Church, the crimes of the Roman Catholic Church, and the condemnation of the Roman Catholic Church, when they're examined in the light of Scripture, we have to say that Scripture condemns. And it's the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, as you've outlined in this chapter. It's the difference between light and darkness. The teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is the difference between salvation and condemnation. Such an important issue there that we cannot cloud the issue. It's completely clear. The Word of God would say, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. The Reformed position is that we hold to the finished work of Christ as being complete, being sufficient, never to be repeated, and yet the Roman Catholic Church want to repeat the sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. In relation to the salvation, to the justification of the soul, uh, we believe what the Bible teaches uh, when it says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God and that the just shall live by faith. The Roman Catholic Church, as we've outlined, will add to faith. They'll add to faith works, and baptism, and penance, and purgatory, and masses, and prayers. I want to underline today that salvation is not found in any church or any denomination it's not found in any priest or in any preacher. Salvation is found in Christ. 
And I bring this message today on Reformation Sunday out of love. Out of love for those whose eyes would be closed, whose ears would be deafened, and who would be deceived through the teaching of the Church of Rome, that the Lord would use his word to one stop the deafened ears, to open up the blinded eyes. And the precious souls might come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation, as we often say, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And may the Lord bless these great truths to our hearts this morning.